Welcome to Men's Health Monthly with Dr. Tom Walsh, Director of the University of Washington's Men's Health Center and Associate Professor of Urology at the UW, featuring important topics dealing with men's health, including prostate cancer and erectile dysfunction. Here's your host, Neil Scott. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to our new series on Sports Radio 950 KJR and KZOK, Seattle's classic rock station. It's Men's Health Monthly featuring Dr. Tom Walsh, a look at many important issues that affect men specifically, including prostate cancer as well as sexual and reproductive care involving a wide range of conditions. Dr. Walsh is an associate professor at the University of Washington, and he's also the director of the UW Men's Health Center. Now, he'll be with us every month to offer his insight into men's health issues from prevention and education to information on advanced treatment options. Now, this month, our special guest is Dr. John Gore. John's a world-renowned leader in prostate survivorship. He's a clinician, a surgeon, researcher, and educator specializing in urologic oncology and general urology. And, of course, we want this program to be not only for you, but to include you giving you an opportunity to ask Dr. Walsh questions about health issues. You can do that anonymously in a couple of different ways. You can leave a question on Dr. Walsh's voicemail at 206-598-0937, or you can send an email question to menshealthmonthly at iheartmedia.com. In fact, let's begin with a few questions from listeners and answers from Dr. Walsh and Dr. Gore. A question that came in from Mike in Tacoma wanted to know, is there any hereditary connection to erectile dysfunction? My dad had it for years. Am I likely to get it? And is it preventable? You know, that's a really good question. My short answer is that, yes, probably there is a hereditary component. However, what I would say, and I'd like to hear Dr. Gore's opinion on this, is that it's not that we have a, a genetic test that clearly marks whether or not somebody's destined to experience erectile dysfunction. I mean, let's not forget that this is a relatively ubiquitous disease, mm-hmm. the kind of thing where if you live long enough, you're going to experience it. But we know that there are many diseases that contribute to erectile dysfunction. Uh, you know, for example, diabetes. And there is clearly a hereditary component to diabetes. Right. So to the extent that you may inherit a predisposition to some of these risk factors... I would say, yes, there's probably a very strong hereditary component. But I would also say that just because your father had it doesn't mean that you can't fight to not get it to the extent that if you're at risk from a cardiovascular disease perspective, you need to do it better. You know, you need to exercise more. You need to, if you have high blood pressure, you need to treat it. If you have diabetes, you need to address it. High cholesterol. Yeah, high cholesterol, all those Mm, things. I agree. I think what we're learning is, you know, the human genome is massive. Right. And I think we used to think about disease as something that like a single gene would turn on and turn off. And if you had that gene, you had the disease. And if you didn't have that gene, you were lucky. And that's just not how it works. The complex interplay between our genes and then the environment in which we live and and how we impact the way that these things all work together through our own behaviors like smoking, like exercise, like diet. You know, it's it's a complex interplay that we don't always understand. And We used to think some of these genetic associations were fairly uncommon, and the more we learn and the more we unlock that code, the more we're we're learning that a lot of it is is genetic and related. 
Uh, a question from Anonymous. What are the latest advancements in erectile dysfunction? Is there anything new on the horizon? I think the greatest advancements in erectile dysfunction, I think number one is unlocking our understanding of just how closely linked things like erectile dysfunction are to cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular mm-hmm. risk factors. And there is work looking to see, are there specific ways we can identify those men who are most predisposed and who we could intervene earlier? In terms of medical treatments, there are very few new medical treatments that are currently under testing or on the horizon. But one of the treatments that is currently available in the here and now is something called the penile prosthesis. Mm-hmm. And that device is currently undergoing major advances towards how it interacts with men to restore their erections. And I'll give you a highlight of that, which is that several years back, one of the manufacturers, one of the biotechnical firms that manufactures the penile implant, joined almost in a marriage with a company that makes things for cardiac disease, like cardiac defibrillators and pacemakers and Mm. things like that. And through that marriage of technologies, we're now seeing incredible advancements in the automation of these devices. I think we see that on the horizon in the relatively near future. Uh, A question from John in Bellevue is, if the prostate is strictly related to semen and reproduction, can men choose to have it removed much like a woman has a hysterectomy? The comment I always make to men is that the prostate has this unfortunate location in in kind of the epicenter of the genitourinary tract. Mm -hmm. And so the prostate sits below the bladder in front of the rectum. The sperm tubes that bring sperm into the urinary tract, they enter into the prostate. And it sits above the urethra, the tube that you pee out of. And then surrounding the prostate are the erection nerves, the nerves that go underneath your pubic bone to the penis to help stimulate you to have an erection. So it's just a really unfortunate position to be in. So it's easy to say, much like a woman who's having bothersome fibroids Mm -hmm. gets a hysterectomy at maybe a younger age, it's easy to say maybe we should consider sort of a prophylactic removal of the prostate. But the the downside, the side effects of that are going to be stark. Even in a perfectly done prostatectomy, the best prostatectomy surgeon in the world, they're going to suffer some sexual function consequences. We did some work now about 10 years ago to look at how often men return to their baseline sexual health after removing the prostate for prostate cancer. And it's not to say that men can't be perfectly functionally sexually active, but the likelihood that they're going to have that same sexual function that they had before is, is zero. You potentially lose a lot by considering doing that. So that's not something we recommend ever. John, you bring up a really good point and, and this idea of the anatomic location of the prostate. I think it'd be really worthwhile if you also talk about how a man controls his urination. You know, let's face it, men face trials and tribulations with their prostates also as they grow older, not necessarily for cancer reasons, but often benign reasons. Yeah, that's a great point. So, you know, the one comment I also make, you know, when uh, women transition to being postmenopausal and the uterus is no longer a reproductive organ, it tends to shrink in size. So a lot of postmenopausal women have a small uterus that can even be removed through the vagina. When we get older, the prostate as a gland continues to grow. So your prostate is intended to be a reproductive organ. But much like your knees and your hips, it wasn't intended to live 70, 80 years. And so it continues to grow. And because it sits right in front of the bladder, it's a clog in the pipe. 
And so as we get older and our prostate obstructs the urine flow from our bladders, it can be harder and harder to urinate. And that's a huge cause of morbidity for older men. Let's talk about prostate cancer survivor research. Yeah. Uh, you were one of the leading researchers in the country on that. Tell me about what that means to people who are listening. What are the latest trends on surviving prostate cancer? So prostate cancer is a unique cancer in that even in the setting of aggressive cancers, men tend to live a long time. So the side effects of the treatment that we deliver are really important to their quality of life because even in the setting of an aggressive cancer, these men are living you know, 8, 10, 12 years. And so understanding that balance of the quality of life and the quantity of life is really critical. I came from a training program where a lot of quality of life and survivorship research was about characterizing the problem. What is the magnitude of the problem? What is the burden of the problem? And we did a lot of work to kind of show that. But what we've tried to do, and I think what this latest wave of survivorship care is about, is actually trying to improve it, trying to help men understand their survivorship needs. And so instead of just characterizing how men are doing after these treatments, we're trying to show men how they're doing with some context. What's important about prostate cancer survivorship is if you have a problem, like urinary incontinence, like sexual dysfunction, it's not that you have to understand how to accommodate to it. You can treat it. There are secondary treatments available for these side effects and these detriments, but some men don't understand their suitability, candidacy, or even the availability of these treatments. So what we've tried to do is create tools that allow men to understand not just how they're doing, but with some context and with some understanding of the resources that are available to, to address some of those. What are some of those tools, John? We partnered with Movember, the mustache organization. Mm -hmm. So Movember is an Australian organization, and their major campaign, they have a couple of campaigns, their major campaign is the November Movember campaign where you grow a mustache for, just like you would raise money for multiple sclerosis by doing a 150-mile bike ride, you raise money for your mustache. And what if you already have a mustache? You shave it. You shave it, Neil. So we created something called the, the Symptom Tracker, and it allows men to input their quality of life information, and then they view a dashboard that shows their quality of life score over time with the context of, quote-unquote, men like them. Depending on what they self-report, if they're bothered by some of their symptoms, say they have urinary incontinence and they had their prostate removed as a surgery, then it can output self-management content. And what we find from talking to a lot of men is they would be interested in something like a urinary sling to help restore their continence. They just don't know it's available. And so some of what we're trying to do is draw attention that there are some treatments available if you are bothered by some of these symptoms. Uh, somewhat like uh, the penile implant. Most exactly. men don't know that that is available. You know, John, obviously... I know some about your research, but part of the reason I wanted to have this conversation is that I remain fascinated at this idea that there's some very fundamental information that men may not understand about their recovery or about their bodies as they're progressing through whether it's prostate cancer treatment. What percentage of men actually continue to have sort of what we would call survivorship care after they're treated for prostate cancer? Do yeah. we know this? That's a great question. We, we don't have great insight. We know a little bit more about patients that follow up with urologists, uh, but we don't know, for example, as much about the long-term survivorship care of patients who have had radiation. 
we do know that the burden of the side effects of treatment, so urinary incontinence, urinary dysfunction, sexual dysfunction, are fairly alarmingly common. And so even in the best hands, erectile dysfunction in someone who has good erectile function before surgery, and that's really important, I'll come back to that in a second, is still more than 50%. And then urinary incontinence, even in the hands of an expert surgeon, is still about 10 to 15%. That's burdensome when you consider that this is the commonest cancer in men. I also think it's important to know that men come to these treatments in a highly variable baseline state. One of the things that we have done historically is create these kind of catch-all decision support aids and catch-all descriptions of survivorship needs. Some men come to their prostate cancer treatment with perfect sexual function, but because the median age of a man with prostate cancer is in their late 60s and early 70s, a lot of men have imperfect sexual function. And so we're kind of creating this impossible percentage of recovery for some men who don't have viable erectile function right, because they're baseline. they're aging just like everyone else. Absolutely. And, and this is one of those things that if you live long enough, you're going to succumb to that. I always think of the anecdote. We all know the 90-year-old who smoked his whole life or smoked her whole life. And yet that's not a very good excuse to keep smoking, right? Yeah, but it's yeah. the same anecdote as the guy, hey, my, you know, my buddy who's 90 years old and has sex all the time. And I think either that guy is just lying yeah. or he's really just the outlier. Because mm-hmm. what, what John said is exactly true. We're all on this downward slope yeah. and certain, certain treatments are simply going to maybe change that slope. Yeah. There's this joke that Tom and I will, will make because you see these reports from people getting prostate cancer treatments where these doctors will advertise you know, 95% you know, potency after their surgeries. That's a potency giving operation. 95% of 60-year-olds do not have perfect sexual function. So if that's actually true, we should all be getting prostatectomies when we're 60. Which is not to say that prostate cancer treatment is really important. Prostate cancer treatment saves lives, and identifying prostate cancer saves lives, and deciding on what treatment you're going to have with an expert is critically important. Mm -hmm. So while these things happen, we still have to address it. If you've just joined us, I'm Neil Scott, and you're listening to Men's Health Monthly on Sports Radio 950 KJR and KZOK, Seattle's classic rock station, featuring Dr. Tom Walsh, director of the UW Men's Health Center, and this month's special guest, Dr. John Gore, internationally recognized expert in prostate cancer survivorship. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to find out if prostate cancer is preventable. And what about screening? Stay with us. Did you know that diabetes, heart disease, and prostate cancer procedures can contribute to erectile dysfunction? Many men aren't aware of this or of all the treatment options that a board-certified urologist can offer. Understand your options and learn where you can find an ED specialist in Seattle to help. Visit edcure.org to get the facts and find a urologist who can offer treatment options that work when pills and injections don't. Again, that's edcure.org. I'm Neil Scott, and welcome back to Men's Health Monthly, featuring Dr. Tom Walsh, director of the UW Men's Health Center, here on Sports Radio 950 KJR and KZOK, Seattle's classic rock station, 
Our special guest this month, nationally prominent expert in prostate cancer survivorship, Dr. John Gore. Is prostate cancer preventable? That is a challenging question to answer. There are some lifestyle behaviors that we think are associated with the development of prostate cancer. The classic example is when you look at the rates of prostate cancer in Western countries compared to the rates of prostate cancer in, say, a country like Japan, where the diets are highly different. And then you take Japanese men who then moved to the U.S. or grew up in the U.S. and look at their rates of prostate cancer, and they're much more like ours. There clearly is a relationship between how we eat and the occurrence and development of prostate cancer. There have been two large-scale prevention trials that looked at prostate cancer prevention with a medication. And the medications they looked at were finasteride and dutasteride. And these are sort of sister medications that work by blocking the conversion of testosterone to the hormone that actually works in the prostate. That's called dihydrotestosterone. Those two trials were done in tens of thousands of men, and they had essentially the same result. On average, they appeared to reduce the occurrence of prostate cancer by 25%. However, there was an association in those studies of an increased occurrence of high-grade prostate cancer in the men that were taking those drugs. So it's difficult to know how to advise men, mm. but there's no organization out there that, that advises for the routine counseling of using these drugs for prevention. Mm. A, a lot of this gets back to the screening. Your research in prostate cancer survivorship is based on screening and finding the prostate cancer. That is a real key thing to get men to get that prostate checked. And I just read that the Prostate Cancer Foundation is actively funding research into better prostate cancer screening, uh, screenings that are more specific and sensitive than the PSA test. It's important to know that the PSA test is a, is a really important cancer screening biomarker. Mm -hmm. So the PSA test was approved by the FDA in 92. Ever since then, it's been used pretty widely in the U.S. It's not used as widely elsewhere, but it's not a perfect test, and no screening test really is. One of the challenges with the PSA test is that there are things other than prostate cancer that make it go up. And so the two big things are prostate enlargement and prostate inflammation. As we get older, our prostate just naturally gets bigger and bigger. About seven years ago, the national organization that makes recommendations about screening, whether it's for colon cancer, cervical cancer, breast cancer, or prostate cancer, made an official recommendation against using the PSA. But that's been revised lately. And now the recommendation for most organizations is that men of a certain age engage in shared decision-making about whether a PSA test is right for them. If you ask a urologist, most urologists will tell you that we believe in PSA screening in part because there are some things that PSA does prevent. It has a tendency to detect more prostate cancers when they're confined to the prostate. After PSA came into use, the occurrence of metastatic prostate cancer at presentation went down dramatically, and it stayed there for a very long time. So it has some important benefits that are important to know about but it's not a perfect test. So you wanna be with someone who's gonna thoughtfully interpret that test and not be reflexive about acting on every kind of abnormality. About newer tests, the reason why we want these tests is because of that nonspecific nature of PSA. So people are looking at tests that are from the urine, that are different blood tests, that are looking at breakdown products of PSA and how that can maybe tell us a story about whether this PSA is more cancer-related or more not. And I would say the jury is still out on what can be used in routine clinical practice. 
So hopefully over the next five years, we'll, we'll find something that's sort of a better mousetrap than PSA. John, are there uh, specific patients that you see who stand out among the background of who you would recommend screening to? That's a fantastic question. It's important to think about the burden of other health conditions for our patients. We are not really great at that as doctors, at understanding someone's life expectancy related to sort of their global health status. But in general, because of the indolence of prostate cancer, anyone who has less than a 10-year life expectancy, we probably shouldn't even be considering talking about PSA. There are a couple patient populations that weren't part of some screening trials that are very critical populations to know about. One is men who have a strong family history of prostate cancer, and that means a primary relative, brother, father. Um, And one is African-American men. African-American men have a higher incidence and mortality from prostate cancer, and there were very few African-American men in these screening trials of PSA. And so the recommendations about shared decision-making and about more sort of conservative ages at which to screen don't really apply to those two groups. If I'm a prostate cancer survivor and I want to use some of the tools you provide, I mean, what's a way for me to learn more? Where do I go? Um, How can I be involved in what you're doing? That's a great question. So the tool we built with Movember's partnership is available at TrueNth, which is T-R-U-E-N-T-H dot U-S-A dot org. And that is a freely available web-based tool. You can create a registration and you can go through the patient reported outcome measurements, and it'll immediately give you an estimate of where you are relative to your prostate cancer treatment relative to men like you. And so if one of your key questions, which a lot of men have, is how am I doing compared to other men, that tool can definitely help you out. In terms of research, where does prostate cancer stand vis-a-vis breast cancer and brain cancer and other types of cancer? In general, urologic cancers are underfunded from a research domain relative to other cancers. There are a number of mechanisms specific to prostate cancer that are incredible resources for prostate cancer researchers and prostate cancer clinicians looking to do clinical prostate cancer Mm -hmm. research, but it still is underfunded relative to breast cancer, especially in the context of their prevalence. You know, breast cancer is far and away the commonest cancer in women. Prostate cancer is far and away the commonest cancer in men, but that discrepancy relative to other cancers and funding is a lot lower for prostate cancer than breast cancer. Wasn't the Nobel Prize for Medicine recently awarded to a researcher who was doing prostate cancer research? So the Nobel Prize was awarded to Jim Allison, who is one of the researchers that discovered the role of checkpoint inhibition. So this is the idea of the immune system somehow not being able to fight cancer because your cancer has turned off a switch that allows the immune system to fight that. And what he discovered is these mechanisms that led to the development of what are called checkpoint inhibitors. This is immune therapy that essentially turns off the off switch. And so it turns back on the immune system's ability to fight the cancer, and he's awarded the Nobel Prize for that. Well, that's pretty amazing. Does, does that help with the funding of research? We would hope so. If only it was that easy. Yeah. <laughs> Advocacy is really important. Some of the cancers we treat that we have been lagging behind in is advocacy enabling funding. And there's a direct pipeline to that. You know, the better we can engage in advocacy for some of these cancers that are really important from a public health standpoint, the better we can realize funding that's going to make make care better. Who does the advocacy, doctor? Anyone. There are a number of advocacy organizations that are involved in prostate cancer care that are leading those efforts, but they can always use help. Can a prostate cancer survivor be an advocate? And if so, how? 
100%. You know, there are some organizations that I've worked with in partnership with some of the research we're doing. Uh, one of the most common is Us2 International, which is an international prostate cancer organization mainly devoted to supporting men um, through their prostate cancer, but they have an advocacy role as well. And so I would look into, you know, what prostate cancer advocacy organizations are available in your area. Oftentimes that can happen via support groups. So if you're attending a support group in your area and you want to have a greater role in advocacy, you can kind of go through that route. So locally, then nationally, a lot of the people that are part of integration panels for research come from support group uh, organizations. You know, Neil, one of the things that I find is that a lot of people who want to be advocates or who even want to support research financially, they want to support they want to support people locally, you know. So people in Seattle, which is an incredibly philanthropic mm-hmm. city, want to support people like John Gore. And one of the ways they can do that is to be part of the UW Accelerate campaign. For somebody who wants to be an advocate today and support some of this really important survivorship research would be to go to the uh, UW Accelerate website and search the Men's Health Research Fund. And through that, we have a direct way to provide support for some of these new startup and innovative research projects. Let's say we have a trainee who would like to spend a year doing research advancing some aspects of, say, digital interaction for survivorship patients with Dr. Gore. We would have the ability Mm. to provide a, a distinct grant to that trainee to work with Dr. Gore for that year. And so it's just a very immediate and local way to support prostate cancer advocacy and research. In doing some research for this particular program, I read something about a liquid biopsy that may be on the horizon. Tell me about that. So a liquid biopsy is the idea of taking blood out of someone just like you would for any kind of blood test and having the capacity to learn from that through genetic testing or biomarkers that show up in the blood something about their cancer or their other health condition that informs their care. You know, some of the thing you might have heard about look at things like circulating tumor cells, so actually trying to find cancer cells that are floating through the blood. We will learn more about the value of that in the future. It's, It's a hot domain of translational basic sciences research, and they can even take those circulating tumor cells and do sort of genetic profiles of those cancer cells to learn more about them. But we don't know a lot about how to implement that data. But it's it's coming. It's coming, yeah, for sure. Dr. Walsh, should a patient get a second opinion on prostate cancer? I think they should always get a second opinion. And, you know, we think of cancer and it has this incredible gravity to it. But I think most significant health decisions, somebody should always get a second opinion. I'll often advise some of my own patients to consider a second opinion if they're wavering on a decision for their health. And I think that sometimes our patients are worried that we as healthcare providers might might be offended. And my answer is always... Always, if your healthcare provider is offended by you wanting Get another opinion, word. there you go. That's that's probably not the person who yeah. you want treating you. You know, even amongst experts in the field of prostate cancer, you'll find differing opinions, and sometimes one is not absolutely right, and one is not absolutely wrong. As we know, there are many different ways to treat or not treat prostate cancer. Sometimes learning different perspectives from people with different backgrounds is is totally appropriate. If I'm offended by your desire to get a second opinion, that says more about me than about you. And another thing that I always tell people is, you know, having more people with big brains think about what the right thing is for you, that can't be a bad thing. Mm. And I also think it's really important that you feel confident in the recommendations you're getting, but you also feel confident in your care team. 
I agree with, um, you know, this is a time where you're trying to gather information about what's best for you. We know that sometimes not everyone is offered all of the available options. And so the more people you talk to, the more you're going to learn about what's available out there to manage, you know, especially prostate cancer. And so I think it's important to talk to a lot of people. In the few moments we have left, tell me some good news about prostate cancer survivorship. I think there's a greater awareness of the importance of survivorship today than there ever was. I think what you'll find is that it used to be even 10 years ago that when you saw your doctor for prostate cancer follow-up, they would tell you, gosh, your PSA looks good. I'll see you in six months. And now because of awareness, because of mindfulness, people are asking important questions and understanding from a better standpoint how patients are doing after prostate cancer treatment. That's the opportunity to make men better and make them navigate their survivorship journey with a better quality of life. The awareness leads to action. Absolutely. Dr. Gore, I appreciate your time and being here. And Tom, as always, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Neil, it's always fun. Before we close, I'd like to offer some trusted and vetted resources for men. One is the Accelerate program that was mentioned, washington.edu forward slash urology forward slash men's dash health. Also, sexhealthmatters.org, edcure.org, and urologyhealth.org. That wraps up another edition of Men's Health Monthly featuring Dr. Tom Walsh, University of Washington professor, surgeon, and director of the UW Men's Health Center. You can reach out to Dr. Walsh with any questions or comments at 206-598-0937 or email questions to menshealthmonthly at iheartmedia.com. Next month, we're going to be joined by Dr. Paula Slater, a prominent psychiatrist talking about matters of men's and couples' sexual health. Men's Health Monthly airs on the last Tuesday of every month on Sports Radio 950 KJR and on the last Sunday of every month at 6.30 a.m. on Seattle's classic rock station KZOK. Until next time, for Dr. Walsh and for this month's special guest, Dr. John Gore, I'm Neil Scott, wishing you good health and good sense in matters relating to men's health. Thanks for joining us on Men's Health Monthly. We'll see you next month.